Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Bianca Miller-Cole, and sharing some good news. I'm pleased to announce BBI now has a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself, Lord Michael Hastings, Eunice Olamide, and fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limiting aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized, counterproductive for society at large. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favourite piece of music, signalling different stages of their life. And joining me today is Julian Douglas, President of the IPA, Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, and VCCP Vice Chairman and Global CEO. And we'll be discussing weaponizing marketing, social justice's new vanguard. Welcome, Julian. Good morning. Great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. So, Julian, tell me about your first track, Where Love Lives by Alison Limerick. First of all, I'm a Mancunian lad. I grew up in Salford in Manchester, and there's a massive music scene up there. Um, Where Love Lives was pretty much an anthem in my late teens and early 20s. Um, But also, you know, I was lucky enough to have a fantastic upbringing, um, my home life was where love lived. You know, I had a wonderful uh, fa- family environment that I grew up in. So for me, that really summed up the formative years of my life, especially pushing out into adulthood. Okay, so becoming president of the IPA as well as vice chairman and global CEO of VCCP is indeed a deeply impressive achievement. But I'm keen to learn a little bit more about the young Julian. (laughs) So let me start with the foundations. Tell me a little bit about mum and dad. My dad was Jamaican, my mum's Irish. Both my parents moved to the UK in their teenage years themselves. And so I grew up with influences from two total different cultures, different parts of the world, as well as a very strong sense of identity and culture growing up in, in, in Manchester as well in the Northwest. So it, it meant there was lots of different influences and inputs and everything from food to music to belief systems to a real work ethic, which I think is often consistent amongst um, immigrants into a country of having to get your head down and get some work done. But yeah, it it meant for a very rich upbringing, even if times were hard. And you were blessed with two older siblings. Have they impacted your choices, career or otherwise? Like most things in life, there can be a positive and a negative to it. But, you know, I think being the youngest by about seven years, man, often I might have been the butt of some jokes um, and, and was certainly last in the queue for pretty much everything. 
But on the, the positive side, um, it was, you know, I learned from their experience and they were fantastic at helping keep me on the straight and narrow. And uh, when it might have perhaps been more fun to rebel a little bit more. So I think coming right through from education and into employment, it was it was a real blessing to have uh, an older brother and sister for sure. In this series, we often look at transformative change. Can you share how this applies to your father? My dad um, went through a huge change, really. My father arrived in the UK at 13 from Kingston, Jamaica, um, with, with many of that generation in the 60s. And, you know, started over in a new country, a new life, and he's built, he built his own career and built a family over here. So I guess there's been a series of transformations over that time that um, continued through his life and then through having his, his kids and then through grandkids um, throughout. And I think at the root of it was a, a real work ethic, a real dedication to progress, a real thirst for knowledge and learning, um, all of which are values that he instilled in me and my brother and sister and you know we we pass on to our own kids so I think there was a series of transformations all the way through he started work he went from working in the music industry in a band to working in manufacturing to ultimately being a, a, a graduate a, or a mature student and having a full career in education so lots of different uh, phases of his life all all of which you know you you get the benefit of as the next generation, don't you? You learn, you, you learn from the generation before and, and take on what you can and, and then go on to your own journey. Absolutely, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Your family can make a huge impact on your own trajectory and thoughts and feelings about the future. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that you went from Manchester Grammar to Oxford University. I yeah. mean, there's no surprise you were probably a small minority. What were your recollections of the first few days there? I remember my first days going into the exams for Manchester Grammar. That was pretty scary. That was such a huge, big institution. And I remember being dropped off into the into the main hall and I was the first kid there. And that's a huge school. That was over 1,200 lads go to Manchester Grammar. So um, even, even that in itself um, was, was, was a big stepping stone. And then I think going on to Oxford was similar. When we I, I did the interviews to get into Oxford and... It was just a whole world that was new to me. Was, I went down there. It's like going to Disneyland, really. I was just wide-eyed looking at this place. You could feel the history, this seat of learning. Um, you know, it, I found it quite wonderful, really. And I don't know, I just hit it with a load of energy and optimism and and just thought this might be my only... It's a three-day residential interview you had to do back then. And I just treated it like... I might never come here again, so let's just enjoy my three days here. And I guess I was lucky enough to then get in. Once you then turn up to start start the degree, it's also quite scary. It's an intimidating place to go because you're looking around and you're going, everyone's so smart. How on earth am I going to keep up? How am I going to trade with these people? And, you know, I think it was it was a big change coming down from Manchester going to Oxford on, on lots of different levels. You know, I think there's a, um, 
you, you, there was a sense of feeling a bit of an outsider, whether that was because of the North-South divide, whether that was class, whether that's race. There was lots of reasons to feel some degree of otherness that could be intimidating. But also it was there, there, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful place because everyone's united by a desire to learn. I can imagine it being quite magical. Is that a fair yes. is, is that a fair right. description? A bit Hogwartsy, is that true? I, I definitely think it is, especially in that, that first term when you go down, because you get it just on the turn of autumn and it looks stunning. And then then I think it's especially beautiful in the winter down in Oxford and it's you know, it's, there's all these clubs and societies and old rooms and paintings and, you know, there, there is a bit of a Hogwarts, Hogwarts vibe around the place. You know, there's, there's, there is a sense of wonderment to it, but, you know, you sort of quick, had to quickly get beyond that and do some work. I, I, I got a bit of a, a kick up the backside in my first couple of weeks. I think I spent a little bit too much time wandering around, taking it all in and, and not really getting my head down. So, so you, you, soon, you soon learn how much of a shift you have to put in. So university life obviously suited you, karate captain, involved in clubs and societies, but it's your next move that's really impressive, a job in the printing department. Can you tell us about this cunning move? Well, it wasn't planned. Um, it was a bit more by accident than design, but um, it turned out to be a very, very... Use, useful stepping stone. So in my final year at uni, to earn a couple of quid, I took a part-time job Monday and Tuesday mornings in the career service of Oxford University. And it was a fantastic, fantastic little job because it paid £8 an hour, which was a heck of a lot of money back then. Um, but even better, this is all pre-internet, obviously, um, I printed out by hand on a big old printing machine, the list of jobs that were offered up to Oxford graduates. It was called The Bridge. And we would print this out as about 20 sides of A4 with jobs a paragraph, each page covered in jobs a paragraph each that said the company, the title and the starting salary and a paragraph on the job. And I would print these out and stuff them into envelopes and post them to recent graduates right across the country. They had to pay £20 a year to cover postage. So for that final year, I got to see pretty much every job that was offered up to a, a graduate coming out of Oxford, which was really invaluable, to be honest. Um, I had a real sense of what was out there, so I made the most of it, and I applied to a lot of jobs. Um, I did a lot of first-round interviews, so... Through that process, it only helped to get me onto my next stage because I came out of, as I was coming in my final year, I was de desperate to move to London. I just wanted to get into the, I, I didn't, I'd done enough studying by then. I wanted, to, I wanted to earn some money and move to town. Yeah. Um, so that job was absolutely key. And like waiting for a bus, you ended up with three career opportunities. Do you remember what those were? Well, I, yeah, I applied for a broad range. I applied to a broad range of jobs, just try them out, really, and to get interview practice. And, you know, I did I applied to everything from, you know, I did a geography degree, so I did everything from accountancy through to more city um, trading jobs. I had a job offer to be a derivative trader, um, which I very nearly took. But then I saw an advert on television, which was, it showed a city trader doing a test drive in an Audi car. And he, he had him thrashing the car around town on a, on his test drive going, money, nothing to be ashamed of. 
places you go, people you see him with car you drive. And he and he drops the Audi back at the garage and says it's not his style and throws the keys back. And I saw that advert and I thought it was just the best thing I'd ever seen. I just thought it was so smart. You couldn't pause telly then, so when he used to come on, I'd make my flatmates be quiet when he came on just so I could enjoy it. And as a result of that ad, I thought, right, I won't go into, I won't be a trader, I'll, I'll, I'll make the ad. So I did some, you know, I looked into it and found out what the advertising industry is and how I could get in. And I was lucky enough to land myself a job at an agency. So that's, that's how I started my, my working career. Amazing. Imagine that first step into advertising, just being inspired by that Audi advert. Was it the moment that he threw the keys back? That was the moment for you? Or? I just thought it was, I just thought it was so smart. It, it was, you know, the, uh, at his best, you know, a lot of the best advertising, especially back then, was like a movie in 60 seconds, you know, it's just like yeah. such, a, so incisive and insightful, and then just done with such style and panache that it was, you know, the, that, that was still the era when people used to say they, you know, they used to watch the adverts in, in between, you know, because they were so good. And I just thought it was, I thought it was just so clever. And it made me really want to buy an Audi. I couldn't even drive at the time. But, you know, the, the, the payback on that ad, the lifetime of that ad, you know, it's great. I think that's like really built the, built the power of a brand as being a little bit more discerning yeah. of a choice. And I just thought it was so clever. I think as it's best, you know, I'm still working advertising today. I think it's extremely powerful. Mm. Um, when, when done well, it can shift attitudes, belief, behaviours. It can be extremely powerful. Section two, challenges, growth and DNI. Your next track, Against All Odds by Phil Collins. Is there a message in the music? Yes, it's, I mean, it's so difficult to pick a couple of songs. Um, to sort of sum up a lifetime. And I picked against all odds for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's, the title's great, because I, I, I think, you know, I, there were plenty of stages in my, in, my, in my journey where people might have been surprised at what I, what I achieved, you know, and would have thought it was against all odds for me to, to, to get there. You know, not necessarily myself or my family, but others maybe. But um, the other reason I, I pick it is, you know, somewhere along the line, I set up a karaoke bar um, with my best friend, Johnny Shaw. And it's grown to be very successful. We've got 10 bars across the UK and one in Dubai, in fact. Um, wow. but, uh, against all odds, I'm not a very good singer at all, but I enjoy singing. And there are certain songs... That, that you hear on the radio and you go, I'm going to have a go at that. And against all odds, is probably one that I spent years trying to be able to deliver. So I used to practice it in my car a lot. And I've had many a night trying to sing against all odds, and I tend to fail. But <laughs> even more ridiculously, um, I, I once had a, a Volkswagen Golf and it had a, a CD changer in it. So I used to have a big bag with loads of different CDs in it. And... One day I came down to the car and it had been, someone had burgled the car. They'd taken the entire back seat, which is a really weird thing to do. It was a leather back seat, so it had been stolen to order. They took that and they took all my CDs. And then the, the, the front on this, 
whoever the, the thief was. They just they took all the CDs and left the best of Phil Collins compartment <laughs> <laughs> to take the Mick, which was still quite which I only had in there because I was practicing against all odds. So yeah, it sort of reminds me of setting up the karaoke business, um, taking on big feats and sometimes winning, and I guess sometimes coming up short. But as you know, it's clear, clearly a uh, clearly a crook with taste. <laughs> Please tell us about your first marketing job and recollection of the first advertising campaigns you worked on. Yeah, so when I started, I was I was so excited because you were getting to put stuff on telly. You know, I mean, what could be more exciting than that? And creating billboards and you know very big media. Um, that was that was big shared media at the at the time in the late nineties when I started. And my, the first accounts I worked on were Bass Beers, as they were then called, which was great because the Bass logo, the red triangle, is the first ever brand um, that brand mark was ever made. So it was fantastic to work on that. And I did ads for Caffrey's and Carling. And it was, you know, as a young lad moving to, to London who, who did enjoy a pint, it was great to be working in the advertising in the, the uh, booze sector. And then... Yeah, it comes pretty quickly at your advertising. Part of the joy of it is you work across so many different sectors so quickly. So I did everything from engine oil to the national lottery, all sorts of different, all sorts of different things I worked on. And it was, it was a London was new for me. I didn't know anybody in London when I moved down here. I didn't know anybody in the industry. I had no idea how you made an ad. I didn't know how shoots worked. I didn't, you know, go into recording studios. It was all extremely exciting and extremely social and a very active industry. And had a very diverse group of people worked in advertising at the time from lots of different walks of life. Lots of people in the industry had done other things before. People from right across the UK. And it just made for a really dynamic, creative environment that I really thrived in. Your second role was at BBH. Yes. where you worked on some exceptional campaigns. Can you share a few of your favourites? So I, I did a couple of years at my first agency, and then um, about two years in, there used, used to be a training course called IPA2 that many people in advertising did. And at that point, you tended to figure out how you measured up against your peers. So you could, you, about 100 of you from the same intake would, uh, right across the industry could, could measure up and see how good am I and how much are they getting paid? And then lots of people would then move. So I moved around and the best agency in London, probably in the world at the time, was an agency called BBH, Bartle, Bogle, Hegarty. And they were making some phenomenal work. And so I was lucky enough to land a job there, making ads for Levi's when, when they were cool. And that was brilliant. We did the Lynx effect. I worked on that. I got to work on Audi, which was the reason why I got into the industry. And... And on Bernardo's as well, there was some phenomenally effective, brilliant work for Bernardo's, a charity that was, you know, knocking up their donation rates by 800% when we did a campaign there. So it was a, it was a brilliant time. The talent level was just so high. And yeah. I think, again, you had a real cross-section of characters and people who were united by real creativity, real talent, real highly motivated, and, and, and doing creating campaigns that were effective but populate culture. Beautiful full circle moment, just going from that Audi inspiration to actually working on an Audi campaign. Your career was obviously flourishing at BBH. You are growing your reputation. Then you left and went to another agency. What made you leave? What tempted you away? It's quite an interesting stage to be at when things are going well. 
because part of you wants to keep on that track, but I don't know. There's maybe just a bit of another part in me that wanted to get onto the next thing. I guess I, I guess it could be. You could call it ambition. You could call it itchy feet, because mm. think things were certainly going well, and I can't say every move I made subsequently was a right move, but. I don't know, I guess I've always had something in me that wants to try the next thing, wants to try something new, an entrepreneurial spirit. So I, you know, I, I mentioned uh, I set up a business with a friend. Me, me and my strategic partner who worked together on Audi, we were having the time of our lives, but we, I guess we wanted to try something else out and, and see how much further we could push ourselves and could we achieve more? Could we, because BBH was such a good agency but it was a good agency when we arrived and it was a good agency. Well, you know, it's a great agency when we arrived and a great agency while we were there. I think we wanted to build something. Mm. It, it wasn't enough just to keep a good thing going. It, it's, that's dif it's difficult to do, but it's even more difficult to go and start something anew. So, you yeah, know, yeah. We, we took a move to another agency, which wasn't, it was the opposite. It was a really dull agency or famous for being conventional agency. And we went to try and turn the oil tank around now we didn't achieve that. We we learned, but we learned more in in failing to turn that agency around than we did by doing fifth the fifth year at BBH. And it's right. also true that often when you try these things, when you push yourself, you could end up in a in a even if you don't complete the initial task you go for, it can lead to another interesting thing. So it was by doing the the by leaving BBH and going to the next job, where we didn't have a bad year, but we certainly didn't achieve what we wanted to do with the company. But in some of the work we did there, we ended up meeting the investor into our karaoke business. So Lucky Voice wouldn't have happened without us going to Grey. Right, um, of course. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. So I think sometimes it's important to push yourself even when things are going well. Because if, if you hang on to something because it's right now, it, it might not be like that in, in 12 months, 18 months' time. You know, I think keeping that forward momentum is, is important. Mm. And wh whilst you were at Grey, I, I guess, was it a culmination of different kind of superstars from different PR companies that brought this organisation together? Grey was a big, he's a big old, uh, agent, very well-established agency. At that period of its development, they were trying to bring it back into being a preeminent agency in the UK. And the way they did that was by having a clear out they got rid of a lot of people, like 90 people, mm. and all the meeting rooms, and they redid the thing, and they got in about 20 of us um, who were handpicked from some of the highest performing agencies to see, can we just turn it around effectively overnight? I would right. say that approach, this doesn't work. Um, you know, it, it, it was too abrupt, and it was probably... Okay. Um, ill-considered trying to change things that quickly. But individually, lots of us had success as a result. So everyone came in, tried this thing for a year. Most of us all left pretty soon after after a year. It was a rock and roll year, though. So I, I, some of my fondest memories of, of my advertising career were during those 12 months. And I met my wife in that year. So that year's got a lot to answer for. Um, <laughs> so was, an incredible uh, year in some regards, but yeah, it unfortunately year. I, didn't I, work. Met my wife and started a business, um, but it's probably my least productive advertising year. <laughs> and, it, and it's in that least productive advertising year that I understand you encountered some direct racism. Could you expand yes. on that? 
Yes, there was. So, I mean, that was, you know, we're, we're looking almost probably about 18 years ago now, maybe 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, I was in a reasonably senior position by now. So I was in, in meetings with, you know, region, it was a multinational company, regional, the, the, C, the chief marketing officer, the CMO was in there with presenting a brand new campaign to relaunch one of their major brands, household name across Europe. And we presented the work and she loved it. And she's like, it's all great. Yeah, we're going to proceed with this. Just one, one issue though. I can't go ahead with this commercial where the lead talent is black. Mm. And it was, it was a jaw dropping moment for me to be sat there with a responsible advertiser. So I don't think that it was racism on her part as an individual, or perhaps it was, perhaps it wasn't, but her argument was, oh no, they, they weren't like this in certain territories across Europe, so I can't do it. Mm. So which my response was, as a responsible advertiser, you can't be refusing the talent in a campaign based on the colour of their skin. And there's a debate that, uh, you know, continues to this day, to be honest, but that was the first time I had it so blatantly put out on the table in front of me. And I guess you, one must respond as an individual to that and at a company level to that, of, of what you're prepared to come down and what you're not. And my personal decision is I said, okay, well, I'm not gonna work, I'm not gonna work on your business. So I, I, I walked off that account within 24 hours, but it wow. was, it, it was a, it was a very uh, difficult moment. And, and in that moment, you obviously felt that you were able to walk away yes. without any recrimination. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, it was, which is testament, I guess, to the company I was working at, to Gray, mm -hmm. where I, 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 I was confident that there wouldn't be re repercussions for me individually. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a debate to be had of responsibility on the agency to work with a client like that but it's equally you, you can't walk away from every piece of business that has a difficult conversation or you won't have a business going much longer so um you know this is something that i i look at now at an industry level of how we deal with these sort of issues but you know i, I did have the support of my chief executive i mean i think it's a, it's a sort of uncomfortable awkward instance or situation to arise, but you, you I don't know, my, my mantra has always been don't duck it. You, 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 you've got to have the courageous conversation. You've got to follow your convictions. You know, I, I, I couldn't keep working on. My, my biggest issue was they weren't behaving responsi responsibly and a company of that scale is beholden on them to be responsible as an advertiser. Um, Absolutely. So it, it actually then made my decision pretty straightforward. I was going, well, I just can't work with you then. Um, but you know, perhaps others wouldn't be as fortunate either to feel they had the support of their seniors or would be worried that the, the client might walk and then it affects their colleagues, you know, it, 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 it can be very difficult. So presumably the campaign went ahead just without you at its helm? Yeah, I think in that instance, yeah, the campaign did go ahead in a, diff in a different guise. I think if that were to happen today, and it, the situation does continue to arise. I can think of an example in the last 12 months where the exact same situations arise, but arisen. 
but the the nature of the discussion is different now. The, the nature of discussion goes beyond just the individual people around the table to going, well, I think there's there's a much heightened awareness on consideration for what? For the commitments that companies have made on their ESG commitments, on their commitments, their social commitments, where it's easy to call that out. And you can call out that behavior and go, hold on, look, by your values you have here in your ESG report and your annual report, do you think this, this, you know, this is out of whack with the decision that you're making in practice here? Mm -hmm. I think the world is improving. Obviously, it's not fixed, but I think strides have been made over the last two decades on that front. But the, fir yeah. the first moment you really encounter it, though, it is a bit of a shock to the system. Of course. And just knowing how to respond to that, because I feel, as you say, you have that individual responsibility, but then you're also part of an organization and organizations have their own uh, thoughts and feelings on next steps and how to deal with clients. So it's good of you to take that to take that stance. Um, but that led to you leaving Gray. I don't know if that was part of the decision, but you left Gray and you went into uh, TBWA yes, owned I, I, by I, I... Omnicom. Yes, I, I, I moved. I didn't move because of that. I moved because I, okay. I wasn't making very good ads. Okay, that's a good reason, um, very honest. You know, I think um, <laughs> the most important <laughs> thing in, in our industry is to make good work that works. So uh, if you can't make it at the place you're at, then it's probably a good idea to move. I went to TWA. Um, I only lasted a year at TWA. So at this point in my career, I was moving around quite a bit. I went in there. And I had quite good fun at TWA, but yeah, it, it, it didn't end well. And I didn't really make any good work there either, to be honest. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> a golden year for advertising. But that was the time when we launched the karaoke bar. So I did one of we'll my call, We'll call that a blip, a blip in the matrix. That's what happened there. You needed a little break. Push. It happens, it happens. I, I, was, I was laid off from TWA. They fired me with the basis being I was more interested in my own business than my client's business. Um, was what the managing director said as he as we parted ways, and I was like, "Dead right, of course I yeah. am." You know, <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite interesting today. Um, everyone's encouraged to have a, a side hustle, to be an entrepreneur, to set things up. I think back then, yeah. back then, lots of companies a side hustle to be a distraction from your real job. Where I think today people understand if you can secure investment and build a business in your spare time, that's, that's pretty useful. That's, yes. that's, a, that's a good sign. Yeah, and so good skill like, set you've got there. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So I think there's been some progression on the industry level, in the industry level there. So tell me about Lucky Voices. You've mentioned it a few times. You're clearly very passionate about uh, karaoke and your, your entrepreneurial yes. pursuits. Uh, so tell me how it all came about. That came about by my strategic partner, Johnny Shaw and myself, he lived in Japan, so loved karaoke. I liked it from, from going to the pub on occasion over the years. And I guess we spotted an opportunity in the market for a premium private-roomed Japanese-style karaoke experience. Basically didn't exist in the UK. Mm -hmm. If you were really in the know, you could find a small place above and and sushi bar in Soho, but it didn't really exist on scale, certainly not done well with modern technology. But we we just realized if you did it well, this is a perfect, it's a perfect thing for people to do for office nights out, parties, anniversaries, birthdays. And also deeper than that, singing is a fundamental 
joy, you know, in every religion in the world and every culture, people sing to celebrate, people sing to worship, people sing when they're drunk, it's joyous. Um, so the only thing getting in the way of people singing and singing together is shame. It's because most of us can't sing. So if, if, you, if you're out partying or if you're worshipping, people tend to sing because you're in a group or the football. Yeah. I guess our pitch was with the death of, of the football terraces and, and religion in the UK, people were singing together less. So we were on a mission to get people together singing more to make the UK happier and livelier place. And you did that by putting people into small rooms where... They, it wasn't about how they sound, it's about how they felt. Mm. And, and the, the concept worked especially well. So I think our ambition was for private room karaoke to just become a mainstay of entertainment. And I think, I'd say today it certainly is. You know, that it, it used to be, our whole thing was you go, do we go for a drink? Do we go bowling? Shall we go for a sing? That was always what we wanted to get it as just a... a an option for everybody. And I think most people I speak to now have at least tried it. Not everyone loves it, but, you know, <laughs> most, most people have, have, have tried it at some stage. So that was, it was I great. do love a bit of singing. My husband might agree with you that it's uh, better kept in a private environment. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I do enjoy a bit of singing. So you were saying, so previous to this starting this business, it was marketing, it was creative. You were now yes. an entrepreneur. How yes. did that compare for you? Um, it's, I found it fascinating. I think there's some things are similar. The sense of creating something out of nothing from a blank piece of paper, going, this didn't exist without us putting our heads together and putting the graft in, is really, is, is really satisfying to build something out of nothing. I think for me, I'm having had a pretty charmed existence of working in London advertising from the 90s and 2000s, though, it's much harder building a business. It's, you know, as even back in those very early days when you, you know, you're working from home before working from home seemed to be such a thing. And suddenly, you know, the printer doesn't work or you, you've, you've got to literally every single thing that's been taken care of by your company doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You know, and, and obviously you've got no money coming in. So there's, there's a sharp dose of reality and how do I do this? And there's only a handful of you in the business. And there's not really anyone to turn to or no one to point you in the right direction. You've got to figure it out. So it was it's a real learning curve, big excitement, lots of difficulty, immense satisfaction. Mm. But equally, I'd say for, for me and Johnny, we, we're good at the front end part, the actual delivery and build. Other people stepped in at that stage. So before I knew it, I was back into Adland. I was back into the industry I do. Because coming up with the concept and naming it and what it should be like was really good. But actually rolling out a business, I mean, creativity remains important, but really you're into delivery operations, execution, which um, is absolutely crucial. I guess we over-index on the idea on the idea part. So, um, so before I knew it, I'd, I'd started doing a day a week back at one of my old agencies at Grey. They got me in a day a week to make ads for Manchester City Football Club. He's a team I love, so I started doing that a day. And be, a day became two, became three, and before you knew it, I was fully back in. <laughs> Actually, it launched the second half of my career because I think just like I'd actively chosen to join advertising at the start um, in 97, 
I actively chose to rejoin it, having had six months, nine months out doing Lucky Voice, because I realized, I saw and knew how amazing an industry it is, or amazing a job it is, because you get to sit down and think. And, you know, you set a task and you go away and you try and come up with a creative solution to that, which the answer might be advertising. These days, it may well not be. It might be any sort of experience. But I found that such a privilege and so exciting to be part of that process. So, and the beauty of working in an agency is you get to do that again and again and again in multiple different sectors. So you might be doing it for packaged goods one day for automotive the next for an airline. You might be doing it for a, a charity. So it is forever, forever. It's like a constant sense of renewal. Right. So for me, that became far more exciting than rolling out the karaoke concept, even though I still love it. So I still try to sing every couple of weeks. But um, for me, it was just really exciting getting back into into the advertising industry. Yeah, why do I feel like you're really good at this karaoke thing? I feel, <laughs> I feel like that's our next piece of marketing, a BBI karaoke night with you. I will, ha I will happily host a karaoke night, but you wouldn't want to hear me much. Are you sure? <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that setting up Lucky Voice, that was probably one of your biggest kind of marketing advertising campaigns, yeah. really, wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely. And then, as you say, handing over that, the, the running of the business was certainly something you, you passed on to someone else. But you managed to get backing from Martha Lane Fox. Yes. Just based on a conversation. Is that right? That's right. That's right. I think that's often the way it actually works. She bought into the concept. And I guess, like, like many things, timing was crucial to that. You know, the time we happened to meet Martha was perfectly attuned to when she was looking to invest in something else, something that was a bit different to what she'd already done with Last Minute. Our concept was good. The chemistry was good. You know, I think timing and luck are undervalued as how key they are to, to things happening. And I guess I mean, we time and luck and preparation. I yeah. feel like your, you know, luck plays its part, but you were prepared. You had a fantastic, phenomenal idea ready just to go. About, yeah, just about. I, I, I think, think timing's everything. And I think, yes, I definitely buy you can make your own luck. You've got to be well prepared to realize opportunities when they come along. But um, yeah, there's still a lot of luck involved. <laughs> I like that. So moving us then into section three, a progressive future. Your final piece of music is Levitating by Dua Lipa. Yes. Any reason for that choice? So it was, it's really difficult to pick a song from today, isn't it? I mean, that's almost that harder than the last two. And the reason I picked Levitating is my daughter, Maya. That, that's our shared karaoke song. It was between that and A Whole New World from Disney that we also do a, a pretty mean <laughs> duet on. But um, I go with Levitating because also I'm unashamedly um, a fan of big popular music and Dua Leap is about as, as big as he gets today. So yes, Maya and, Maya and I are, are frequently known to be, to be belting out Levitating. And anyway, I just love the energy and upbeat optimism of the track. Okay, I love that. So bringing us up to uh, current date, you had a phone call from Baroness Nicola Mendelssohn, currently Facebook's vice president, who brought you to VCCP. What does VCCP stand for? And what um, attracted you to this role? So I, I, I joined VCCP, which is Valence Carruthers Coleman Priest, because it was on a journey to become the preeminent agency in the UK. Um, 
So I joined here and I've been here for the best part of 13 years. And, you know, our ethos is to challenge the status quo of how agencies are run, the sort of work that they make, um, sort of all aspects from cultural considerations to methodology to production processes to, to constantly poke things and see is there a better way and um so again you get that constant sense of renewal so i guess here i found my home here really and we've grown during that period from being just in london to now we're in eight offices around the around the world most recently we just opened up just pre-pandemic we just managed to open in shanghai in singapore um we're in north america australia um so it's, it's a very dynamic organization um, that I'm proud to be part of. And what kind of clients are you working with and, and what campaigns are you most proud of at the moment? So the, our founding client is O2, okay. which is now merging with Virgin. We still work with them today. So that founding and longest client. Um, so I ran that account for five years, but we do all sorts of work. So we do a lot of work with Cadbury's. We do the Meerkats that you might know from Compare the Market for the last 12 years. Um, we work with EasyJet. We work with the British Red Cross, but all, all sorts of different companies doing everything from their advertising to digital experiences to, to e-commerce. Um, so it's a full service agency, which means you're constantly needing to get new talent, diverse thinkers, people with different backgrounds and pull them together into teams to really corral around a task. So besides being the global CEO and vice chairman of VCCP, you're also president of the IPA. So tell us what the IPA does. So the IPA is the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. It's the, it's the official trade body of the advertising industry in the UK. It's over 100 years old. And there we bring together all the biggest agencies in the UK, our members, and we promote best practice um, and raise standards and help new companies who are starting in the industry to, to ensure that they, they practice in the best possible way. Um, so I'm, I'm active there. There's lots of training that we do. We, we get help to attract talent into the industry and help to develop and, and train that talent so it can really thrive. And both of your roles mean you're very much at the centre of the advertising world. Does advertising and marketing care about diversity and inclusion? It's absolutely it's critical. The, the only way that advertising and marketing works is by having talent who look at the world a little bit differently. You know, we, the, the, the reason that you'd engage an agency as a client is, is to bring something new, to bring something, a perspective, a point of view that you that you couldn't do yourself. So for us to stay new and to stay innovative and to stay at the cutting edge, we we need to get the most talented individuals we can who bring a diversity of experience and thought. So the, the moment an agent or the, the industry becomes a monoculture where everyone thinks the same, had the same upbringing, went to the same school, then that's the day we die because we're not bringing that newness so it's absolutely beholden on the industry to, to constantly be having that sense of renewal. So diversity is not a nice to have in this industry. It is absolutely crucial. 
In the last 20 months, two huge events have collided and have brought to the fore massive racial disparity issues, the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd. How do you think that has impacted the advertising and marketing industries and how did it impact you specifically? I think it's had a huge, I think it's had a huge impact at society at large. Um, and it certainly has had a massive impact within the marketing community. I think um, if you think back to last May when it happened, I think everyone was shocked, stunned, angered, upset the world over, irrespective of their own background. Um, I, I think it was one of those moments that really united the world. And perhaps with, with the lockdown, that was pretty much global at this time as well. People had a real pent-up energy mm. and a sense of needing to do something. And that's certainly how I felt. And I guess in the position I was in as having a leadership position in the industry, as well as within the company that I work at, felt compelled to do something. So one of the initiatives that um, we set up very swiftly after is called Black Representation in Marketing, BRIM. Mm -hmm. And that's a coalition of companies, big advertisers, the media platforms like Facebook, Google, um, and the agencies, the creative agencies or media agencies. And together, about 35 of us initially, we've now grown to 900 companies, said, what? What can we do about this that's tangible? How do we move from good intentions that have been talked about for years to meaningful action? And there's been a real gear shift in, in progress since then. So we set very clear targets at doubling the number of black leaders in marketing because the, num the number's pitifully small. I think if you look at business in the, F you know, in the FTSE 100, there's only one black chief exec. It's crazy. It's not in line with yeah. uh, the, you know, the, the population in the UK. Um, in marketing, the numbers are way below where they ought to be to reflect the audience, the buying audience that's out there. Um, so, that, so it felt like an, it's an untapped opportunity. Um, so there's a series of initiatives that we're doing to initially share best practice, but then really to develop those people who are already, those black people already working, working in a marketing function to help accelerate their advancement. Hmm. It's, I mean, the, the numbers are scary. So the um, diverse board representation uh, currently the black board representation is below 1%. And in the FTSE 100, the executive board representation actually fell to zero earlier this year. So, so you know, in, incredibly low. Um, can you comment on kind of from a C-suite representation perspective, any things that are happening in industry right now? I know you mentioned uh, earlier something about doing things in communities like Brixton. What, what are those steps they're taking? There's, there's, there's lots happening. I'm happy to report there is a heck of a lot going on, which is why I remain optimistic. And I think historically there's been lots of lots of positive action happening in a very fragmented fashion, um, very locally, which is great as individual cases. What what we've lacked is the aggregation that gets you that multiplier effect to really move things forward. So that's why initiatives such as BRIM, uh, initiatives we're, we're pushing through the IPA, are trying to really 
it's it's all about accelerating what's already happening. It isn't about starting a new because there's lots of work already that's been done well. And I think there's now a a, a willingness to change, a, an understanding from organisations that it's not just the right thing to do. It's good business to do it. I think there's there's I think people understand the need to change and the want to change. Perhaps where they've been struggling is the how to change. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, if I think on Brim, for example, one of the things that we're instigating across the 900 companies, which got some huge, huge companies on there, huge employers, is triangular mentoring, where for the company identifies a black candidate working in their organization who's, who's got potential and assign an internal mentor who, who can help advise how to progress within that company, or an, sorry, an internal sponsor who can really help back that individual to help them progress, but also assign an external black mentor mm -hmm. and getting that triangle between the individual talent, the internal, the internal sponsor and external black mentor can, can work in three ways. It's great, it's great for the individual talent, but it also allows the external black mentor to work with the internal sponsor. And yes. I think getting that three-way at scale across 900 companies and across the number of individuals there can really help accelerate development so then everybody wins yeah absolutely and it's interesting there's some um statistics around how much black minority ethnic people spend every year something around 300 billion is that right is that still that's an right. accurate yeah that's right the black pound report says um that the black community in the uk is spending 300 billion pounds a year mm. and so far for that massive buying power the products and services and communications that are haven't been particularly well tailored to that audience. Mm -hmm. So the opportunities there is vast to uh, yeah. really address it well. I think what's scary about that is there's a 300 billion spend, and yet one of the biggest hurdles is funding for black entrepreneurs. According to the Financial Times, 38 black entrepreneurs received an average of £36,000 over the last decade. One black female received Series A funding. Um, do you think knowledge of black spending power would change attitudes within marketing and advertising? I think, I think knowledge is at the start of it. I think, you know, it, like any behaviour change, Awareness and education is absolutely key, but there's, 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 you know, from a business point of view, it is a no-brainer. But I still think there is an education job to do of, of, of what, what do we do about it? And I think, you know, case studies, testimonials, examples really help to educate um, people on identifying the opportunity, and then here's, here's how you can realise the opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your incredible career with us. I'm sure there's more yet to come. We have a final question that we ask all of our podcast guests. And the question is a pledge that you would like to make in the diversity and inclusion space. What is yours? Okay, my, my pledge is to, is to keep going and double down efforts to make this a more inclusive industry. I think progress in my industry has been glacial to date. So I'm optimistic at chances for the future, but it will take absolute, it will take pledges from pe people in my position um, to really make the systemic changes required to hit targets like doubling the number of black leaders. So my pledge is to keep going. 
Phenomenal. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so interesting learning about your career to date. Um, so thank you.